Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, is Andrew Page from strawman.com. Good day, Andrew. How are you, mate? I'm really good, Scott. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. Thank you for asking, mate. On this wonderful Sunday slash Thursday morning, uh, we are, of course, recording this on Thursday. But if you haven't yet, please make sure you send us an email or a social media message to have your question answered on the podcast. This is your this whole mailbag edition came about because we had plenty of listeners who wanted to make comment or ask questions, and we love answering those questions. So if that is you, and you do want to, you have a question, you have a comment. Uh, you want to interact with us, please do. We love hearing from you. Here's how you can do that. If you're old school, jump onto info at fool.com.au. Yep, email is old school these days. That's how old I am now. I remember when there were stamps. I Already going to do a tangent, Andrew. <laughs> I saw a tweet yesterday and I, I, I want to believe it's real, but I also don't want to be fooled like old person style and thinking it is real when it's not. Apparently, the, the tweet was that someone was asking an person of, of, of a reasonable vintage of a certain age people like you and I they couldn't get the stamp mm-hmm. to stick on the envelope and the old person who was being asked told them to lick the back of it and the young person's mind was blown that's how stamps worked and I thought that was really really funny <laughs> and also made me feel about 485 years old <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what to make of that I thought it was just a funny story and uh, yeah so this these days Mail. Well, so we don't 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 send us an email by snail mail because I don't even know our mailing address. But um, do email us instead. Old school email info at fool.com.au. Uh, you can get in touch with us via the Twitters, uh, either direct message or, or just tag us in your comment or question. I'm at TMF Scott P. That's the Motley Fool. TMF Scott P. You can hit Andrew up at Sage underscore Simeon. Or the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. And of course, if you want to know more about Strawman, at Strawman Invest is Andrew's company's Twitter handle. So you can get all of us there. Send us a question, send us a comment. Um, I don't think Andrew really wants to probably handle all the mailbag questions. So if you've got a question, maybe you flick it to me. If you want to interact with Andrew just for the fun of it, um, at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. Well, mate, I couldn't I couldn't even remember the Twitter handle for Strawman uh, when we did the last <laughs> podcast. So there's says something. That, that says really. something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there should, should there be a little bit of a, should there be some cobwebs on the Twitter account, mate, saying uh, this, this Twitter account is sometimes unattended? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think people will, will probably work that out. I've, I've, it's one of those things that I always think, yeah, I've got to be more active on, and I just, I go through bursts, and then I just sort of forget about it. So anyway, that's, that's, my, that's my problem. Luckily for me, mate, I'm an opinionated bastard, and Twitter is a wonderful place to go and share those opinions that nobody wants, but everyone gets. So uh, if you want some opinions from me, go to at TMF Scott P. If you're on Facebook, unlike Andrew, uh, go to at Scott Phillips Money. That's my work page. Or you can go to the Motley Fool Australia. That's our corporate page. Or if you're on Instagram, the same as my Twitter handle, at TMF Scott P. And the same as the Motley Fool's Twitter handle, at the Motley Fool AU. And you can interact with us there. We get heaps of questions. You know what's interesting, Andrew? We get more questions via Instagram than Twitter, if you can believe that. I don't know what to think of that. Maybe there's more users, so maybe that's what happens. Or maybe our listeners are just more Instagram worthy, maybe, than uh, that, than Twitter worthy. But, um, yeah. We get heaps of interesting questions. Which yeah. Is cool. Yeah. So keep okay. doing that if you want to get in touch with us. Right. That's, that's all like, out of the way, mate. With the exception of my regular standard opening question, what is strawman.com? Mate, uh, Strawman is a essentially it's an online investment club. So people share ideas, insights, research, and they manage a, a play money portfolio to sort of help communicate their intentions and collaborate with other people on shared company reports. So yeah, we're just we're a, we're a bunch of people trying to get better returns for ourselves by collaborating and cooperating. 
There you go. Andrew left the Motley Fool to start Strawman. I will forever be cranky at him for doing so. But uh, while we are kind of somewhat mm-hmm. competitors, we are we are, we are much more friends than, than enemies. Um, and we hope that our members will be members or customers of both businesses because it kind of makes sense either way. But certainly, uh, if you are a Strawman member, come and visit us. If you're a Motley Fool member, go and check out Strawman. It's kind of uh, something fun and, and worth having a look at. Mate, that's all out of the way. Let's get on with the questions. Yeah. Here's the first one. We've got right. Patrick. Dear Scott and Andrew... He says in brackets, Anna Nearbarn, I feel a plug is necessary since I started listening when he was the co-host. That's fine, but he's now dead to me, so no, I'm kidding. Uh, thank you. It's very kind of you, Patrick, to, to mention Doc, <laughs> our, our, our uh, erstwhile colleague and, and co-host. Uh, Patrick says, I want to start with a thank you. While the podcast has enhanced my financial investment knowledge and understanding, the podcast has also changed the way I think about many aspects of life. I, I'm always feeling guilty right now, Andrew, because I'm That's not sure what comes next and I, I'm not sure that thinking the way I do is, is a good yeah. thing for most people. But he says, most importantly, I now think oh, a yeah, lot right. about the future and the way the world may or may not pan out, including the intersection between ethics, business and global trends. I know this is not an explicit focus of your show, but the themes have helped me focus more toward the long-term future. And I found this profoundly beneficial personally as an investor and purely for interest and the way I want to live my life. Oh, it's, that's actually really cool. Uh, can I say, Andrew, I mean, if we have those sort of um, impacts on people, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be pretty, I'll be pretty proud. Like it's not what we try to do necessarily, but if our, if our approach is somewhat thoughtful and useful, then, uh, then that's pretty cool. And it's, I don't know. I said, I, I probably I feel just, guilty. Be, but. Before you get into the, uh, yeah, that's about, that's about the best reply you can get. Before you get to the rest of the question, I think, I think what um, his Patrick's hit upon there is really important. I, I think, one of the things that I love about investing is it just, it obviously it's, it's all money oriented and, you know, money makes the world go round and it's important, all the rest of it. Mm. But for me, the really, the really fascinating thing about it and the thing that draws me into it is, is that having an, a, really a, a view on how the world works and how mm. it all fits together. And it just, I find that aspect of it fascinating. So the fact, the fact that Patrick has, has, has found that that's broadened his thinking towards that thinking about the future and the deep future is, I think, I think is really interesting because that, that is what's going to, to make this a lot more exciting than mm. looking at share price charts and spreadsheets and the rest of it. It, it is, it is having, it is having a view and understanding and appreciation or just a contemplation mm. of, of the world and and our place in it and how things are evolving and changing for better or worse and that's that's what makes it so exciting. I like it. Anyway, I, really I, like I digress. That's what I summarise. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. I, I, I would say for what it's worth. I mean, Patrick was giving me a rap. Don't don't try and make this a bigger issue. It's all about me, really. So no, I'm going to ride those coattails. Don't you worry. I should say, mate. By the way, I, this is this is. A, I will I will sort of weave this in. I, I have I have known you for a very long time, and in nickname at the Motley Fool, and still between you and I is Ram, as in Ram Page, Andrew Page being your full name. And every time I have to say and Andrew, I almost stumble over saying it. And at some point, I'm just going to give up and start calling you Ram again. Uh, but I just I just thought I'd, I'd share that with people. Because if, as and when I do stumble over it, as I think uh, moving forward, um, that will happen. And, and now at least you know you, you're forewarned. All right, here we go. Here's the question. That's to my right. question, says Patrick, I appreciate that you guys try to pick stocks that will beat the market. Yes, we do. My question relates to when do you sell? Like you, he says, I'm keen on long-term investing and appreciating the value of compound returns and time. However, when one does sell, do you recheck the value of shares twice a year, for example? When I look, for example, at price fluctuations in 12 months for Kogan, it's not clear when I would sell or whether one simply keeps matters very simple and holds onto it for 10 plus years. Hoping you could share the way you guys think about when to sell. Thanks in advance and thanks for all your hard work. 
and that's from Patrick. And thank you, Patrick. Again, I very mate, appreciate the kind words and, and appreciate the question. It's a really, really great question. One, I've got to say, mate, outright, I'm, I'm going to make you answer first, by the way. But just by way of editorialising, <laughs> I am much better at buying than selling. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning oh, to your answer, and then I will try desperately to cobble something together for myself. When, when, and how do you sell, mate? How do you think about that process? Such a big question, and 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 I agree. Selling is is ten times harder than than buying. Yep. Um, I think I think most people the question comes from, or where's the share price going to next? Kind of thing. So yeah. is it going to pull back a little bit? Maybe I'll sell now and take take what I can, or is it going to keep going higher? Do I hang on for? I, I think that's I think that's not the right way uh, of of looking at it. Okay. I'd actually go with a very. Uh, a spurious kind of answer. I know that's one that always raises, uh, gets a reaction, and that's the sort of again quote quote Buffett and say never sell, right. never ever sell. And it is, and the first time you hear that, people just go, "What? Well, that is the most painfully ridiculous thing that you can say." <laughs> to the for, point of for, responsibility, for a whole right? variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah like yeah. one is like, "Well, I'd like to make a return at some point, and if I'm never <laughs> selling, how is how is that all possible?" Yeah. You know. Um, and then, oh, what about you know, company X, Y, and Z? If mm. I'd never sold that, I would have, you know. So, but it, it's it's more of an intent, and I think it's a really great way of framing, just thinking about things, and just mm. having the right mindset. So I, so long as my money is in a vehicle of some description, whatever it is, gold, art, house, shares, <laughs> so long as the, the, my forward expectation of returns is attractive, why would I ever want to do that? If I had a magic money box that just spat out a hundred dollar note every year, I mean, why would I sell that thing? You know, it just, it it is, it is, it is valuable. And, and the longer I keep it in there, the more, more my money grows. So then it really comes back to, uh, we talked about it in, in the episode earlier in the week uh, with, with opportunity costs. So it's always a question of sort of saying there are literally tens of thousands of things I could invest in with a few clicks Mm. of a button. So I probably only need 10 or 20 or so to be effectively diversified. So it's always then a question of sort of saying, when I review it, and it's probably sensible to review sort of once a quarter type thing, um, uh, where, is, where is the best 10, 20 uh, opportunities right now? If, mm. if it is better elsewhere, then mm. that, is a, that is an opportunity to sell. If it's not, then, then just stay the course uh, mm. and, and buy more. So that, that requires... A lot of work, obviously. There's 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 monitoring what you've got, and also monitoring what you have, uh, w- what you would like to have, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think that is I think that is the most sensible way to look at it. I, I heard Hamish Douglas, um, sort of famed Australian investor, talking recently about this this an, this metaphor he gave with a sporting team, and it's about sort of saying, listen, you've got you've got this pick of all of these different um, athletes that you can put on the field at any one point in time. And they're all great athletes in and of their own right, but but really. What it comes down to, what are what are the twelve athletes that you're going to field on on match day, and and it's it's it, you know maybe at every half you get the chance to swap players around and that, but it's always putting your strongest foot forward. So it's a it's a relative question, um, and it's it's one that depends on your opportunity set. So as mm. I ranted on uh, earlier on in the week, um, your profit or loss really doesn't make much of a difference. Maybe mm. some exceptions to the rule if you're close to the, the capital gains tax discount period, um, but but uh, yeah. Other than that, where can I get the best return now? And that that's that's the starting ending point for all of that. I like that, mate. I like that. I um. So I'll say, look. So as I said, I'm worse at selling than buying. 
so that's that's first thing. I will say my, my general rule on this one is, and I, I've used this before, but it's kind of one of those things I've, uh, when you go through life and, and you learn as an investor, uh, it's a creative, which is always lovely. Like the longer you do it, the better you get at it, which is, or hopefully you can better get at it. The more experience you certainly have, which is kind of nice, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a positive if you're just getting started. Um, as you think about it, the more experiences you have, hopefully the better informed, the better your investing gets. My, my, my general dictum on this one, which is kind of, kind of codified, is be slow to buy and even slower to sell. So that, that I, I steal that off you all the time. That's a great saying. No, I hope you give me credit for it. Uh, yeah, there's, sometimes there's attribution. <laughs> occasionally, <laughs> once or twice. Occasionally, <laughs> accidentally. Um, it, so, and the idea there is: look, be slow to buy. So, as you said, Andrew, you don't need that many stocks. So, go through. You know, make sure you're buying quality. Make sure you're buying at a decent price. Make sure you're buying the business you want to own. Uh, and that goes to being focused on the business, not the share price or the ticker code or the graph or the chart or the taxi driver or whatever. Buy a business only when you've decided you absolutely want to have it. As if, to you, as you said, you want to own it forever. That's kind of the point, right? So be slow to buy. Once you've done that though, mm. be slower to sell. In other words, if you've done all, so here's, and here's why. If you've done all this work to decide this company belongs in your portfolio, uh, you know, in theory, you've done enough work to say, I want to own this business. I like it. It's good. All that. And then why would you get rid of it? You know, even if, on, on, if it was kind of roughly 50, 50, 60, 40, why would you get rid of it? If you've done all that work to say, this is one of the best businesses I can find and it's got all these attributes that I like, it might have a competitive advantage, it might have great management, it might have market dominance, it might have, uh, it might be a cheap price, whatever whatever you liked about the business, not not the price of the business, that's unlikely to have gone away. And if those things are still true, then I kind of want to make sure I get those things every chance to play out. If I've got a long-term thesis, give it the chance to do what you think it's going to do, right? So that's that's my general rule. When do I sell? Um, in in kind of reverse order, the first thing I, or in most important order, the most the first thing I I, first thing I sell is if the business kind of just starts sucking, and that's you know, that's generically uh, and deliberately kind of you know uh, perverse. But if the business just is not not as impressive as you thought it was or as it used to be, if a company just starts to have poor returns, if it stops growing, if it's losing market share, if the uh, math or the economics is getting worse, and I'm talking, about, I'm talking about you know genuinely and consistently worse, not worse in one year, but you know if, if things just if it's like you know what this used to be a great business, but these days it's pretty run of the mill for whatever reason, then I'm going to start to think well okay so the future's not going to be as bright as the past, and if I get off at a decent price, I'm probably going to sell. So if the, or you know if the business absolutely breaks like someone comes up with a better mousetrap, you know, then, then of course you're going to get out of it, right? If, it just, if the future is bleak, get out. Second is valuation. And valuation is, is a sliding scale. Here's how I think about it. If I, and, and we, we got, um, the question was asked about, about Kogan. If I've got a high growth company, I'm almost never going to look at valuation other than extreme examples because, and I'll get back to why. But if I've got a business that's like a Telstra or a Woolies or a Transurban or a Sydney Airport where growth is going to be slowish and steady-ish, it's, it's, you know, I've, another one I, I like, I know you've seen this one as well, Andrew, is that growth can cover a multitude of value sins or valuation sins. In other yeah. words, if you get the valuation wrong, but the business is growing, you can afford to be quite a bit wrong most of the time. If you've got a business that's not growing and you get the valuation wrong, it's never, ever going to grow into the valuation mistake you made. You just can't, right? You're, you're buying this mm-hmm. business, you've got to have such a tight rein on the valuation and you've got to be ready to buy or sell when it hits the, the extremes of those of those of that of that range because you never ever ever you know if you if you're a I can't think I got what's the most boring business probably Adelaide Brighton right the cement maker it's only going to grow at a couple of percent a year oh yeah if if all of a sudden the share price has to go at seven percent a year to make it's never going to do that like it just can't so there's no value in owning a business that on any sort of objective valuation measure is just simply too expensive and can't possibly justify the current price 
That's, that, that's a valuation basis. But that's not for high growth companies. And the reason, again, as I said, is because high growth businesses can do a whole lot of cool things. And really, you know, uh, again, I mentioned Amazon, mate, but you can, this, Apple's probably a good example um, where, you know, I own Amazon shares, as I've told our listeners many times. It's just one of those businesses that, that just keeps, it's still growing at 20% plus, right? And there's no, mm. there's no, you know, <laughs> no one would have said 15 years ago, Amazon will grow up at 25% in 2021 or 2020. But yet it is. And so sometimes you just got to let those good businesses do their thing. And yeah, is it overvalued? Sometimes maybe. And so, but but maybe it's not, right? And so in that case, if the upside, if the range of outcomes are so big and the upside is so meaningful, then I can absolutely see why you'd want to why you'd want to hang on to an Amazon. And if the price had gone from hundred to a thousand, then back to five hundred, yeah, the price had halved, but it's now three thousand bucks. So I wouldn't be looking at the volatility again, just to, to bring in Patrick's question, as a way to justify when I would sell. Um, but there is a price, you know. You know, there's a price. If, if Amazon just were a trillion dollars each, would I sell? Absolutely. And so, you know, there is there is a price. But generally speaking, for a high growth company, as long as it's delivering, as long as the future looks bright, as long as the operations are continuing to do what we hope they will do, which is grow. As I said before, one of the other ones I, I use regularly is more relevant to more customers more often, and that's Amazon, right? More relevant, so, like Kogan, more products. So I'll bring it back to Kogan specifically. Is it more relevant? Yes, because there's more products being sold. Is it more customers? Yes, it's getting more customers. Are they shopping more often? Yes, because there are more products being offered. And if you get that combination and that continues to be the case for the for an extended period of time, I reckon, again, is there a price? Yeah, look, if someone offered me 100 bucks for Kogan shares tomorrow, would I take it? Yes. Undoubt, yes, I would. Tomorrow, yes, I would take it. But, you know, if the price go back to 25 or 30 bucks, I'd be pretty happy and I frankly wouldn't be in a hurry to get out, go anywhere else because um, I think the business will keep delivering and if it can do that over an extended period of time. I don't want to. I don't want to leave that game too early. I'd rather. I'd rather drop twenty percent on the way out. Uh, you know, selling after it dropped twenty percent. If I've got a hundred percent gain in the meantime, while I waited to make sure my thesis was right. Last one, Andrew, on this one, and I'll get back to you. Um, the la- very last thought is I, I've used the example many, many, many times, and this is the Domino's example where I sold for a sixty percent gain, thinking I was a genius because same sort of sales had just started to slow. We'd made sixty percent for our members. I was, I was a hero. Uh, I owned them myself. I sold them myself. Great. Bank to profit. Fantastic. Well done. Gee, look, the sales might have been starting to, to uh, deteriorate. Lucky I got out in time. And then, of course, the shares went from 13, 13 to 75, then back to 40, and now back to close to 100 bucks. And that mistake, that's mm, an eight ouch. bagger I left on the table from 13 to 100 um, because I was worried that it might be getting into some trouble. And you can afford to have eight companies go to zero, literally zero. If you also owned Amazon, uh, sorry, Amazon. If you also had Domino's that eight bagged, and you're not going to have eight companies go to zero, but that's the that's the risk reward. That is the the trade off um, for holding growth and letting it do its thing. Now, if Domino's had gone from thirteen back to ten or even eight, and I went, okay, fine, uh, you know, same size kept deteriorating. Minus, you know, it was it was growing at six percent, then four, then two, then one, and then at one again. Okay, fine. This the game is over. The thesis is broken. It's not going to grow anymore. This is steady state. She has now eight bucks. Fine. That's one possible outcome. Or the other possible outcome was they recovered from that slump in same store sales, went under 100 bucks a share. And in hindsight, you look at that and go, well, even if, even, you know, even if you thought it was likely that the same store sales had stalled, the very possibility that they hadn't, they might keep growing and it might grow into some sort of business that's worth something like 100 bucks a share, then that is worth, that is worth doing and that is worth uh, hanging on to. So that's my last one about why I'd be super slow to sell. Mate, that was a, a bit of a long monologue. Anything from such, you? 
Well, it's it's such a big question, isn't it? Isn't it? And, and we could go on. <laughs> One thing, I, well, but I'll, I'll I'll just finish up. And, and and I've been actually meaning to ask you this for a while because it occurred oh, to dear. me recently. When David Gardner was out five years ago, mm-hmm. he gave a, a, a talk for the full members, and in it, he gave the example of some gentleman in the US who never sold. And so what he did was every week or month or whenever it was, he got his paycheck, he'd buy some shares. Mm. And then he'd buy some more and he'd buy some. Whenever he had some spare cash, but, but, the, but, the, but the key to the story was he never sold. Right. Now, that, now within, his, within his investment history, uh, I, hopefully you can remember the name or the story because I'd really love to look it up. But, but did that mean that he never made mistakes? No, he made all kinds of mistakes. He had a mm. bunch of stocks that went to zero um, mm. and a lot of stocks that just underperformed and did really, really badly. And it was something like a 60-40 split, like a very significant proportion did very underperform the market if not if not went to zero. Right. But but the moral of the story was that he went he did phenomenally well out of time over time. And and the reason being is that you can only sounds flippant, you can only lose a hundred percent, but you can make much more than a hundred percent, particularly yep. when you're investing over decades. And so this gentleman, he was one of these misers that died look, you know, with you know, wearing the same shirt he'd had on for the last thirty years, but was worth fourteen eight point eight million dollars. And yeah. you know, he was he was a very low, low paid sort of worker, but that it 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 shows that it, and, it, and we see the same story in, in indices. When you, when you really analyze whether it's the All Ordinaries or the S&P 500 in the States, so I'm going to make this up, but it's the, the flavor is basically right. It's, it's something like 80% of the returns are generated from 20% of the stocks. It's the old 80-20 rule. Yep. So, so I, I, I think that there's something to be said with not worrying too much about those I think you're right. When the thesis is busted, when your rationale for investing is no longer holds water and you're objective and, and mm. sensible enough to recognize that, you just get out. You can always reformulate and buy back in if you need to. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. But the point is, is that even if you don't and you're continually putting more money to work as you as you work, save and, and invest, those that you do get right, even if they are a minority of your selection, mm. when they go right, they can go so right. So if you'd bought Amazon and then nine of the other worst tech companies in the world. <laughs> who cares? Right. If you did this in nineteen in 2001 or whenever, who cares? You've, you've still done in, in crazily well. So it's, it's, it's something – I don't think I would ever seriously suggest people do that, but it just – it really emphasizes the, the, the point here about never really selling. It's more just about making sure that capital is accumulating. And when the success be, often begets success as well. So yeah, as those winners point. continue to perform and they just they compound on one – and that's – I mentioned it last week. The for, Rule number one with compounding is don't interrupt it. And, <laughs> and if you can do that the, – the biggest mistakes I've made in my life aren't the ones that have gone to zero and mm. I can testify I've, I've had more than a few examples of that's happened or even the stocks or, or you know stocks that have that dropped 50% plenty of those as well the biggest regrets I have are like the dominoes mm. where I think you know oh I'm a genius I made 100% profit in three months and then three years later look back and realise that it was actually a 10 bagger if I'd just yeah. done nothing yeah. and so the, the investor's Biggest enemy, as as uh, someone famous once said, is 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 Peter Lynch. I think um, is is usually themselves, yep. and and I think there's a lot of truth to that. So so less is more when it comes to investing in a lot of ways. Nice, mate. Now, look. Do, do you know do you know the do you know the name of that guy uh, that that story that I'm I, talking I, about? I want to say Shelby one? Davis, mate, but I'm not entirely sure. I'm, I'm reluctant to. Oh, to, uh, I think right? you're right. Okay. Yes, that rings go. a bell. I'll, I'll Google it in a moment. Yeah. All right. Hey, um, let's move on. We've got another question. Actually, Kogan related this time though. Ben's not happy with Kogan. 
So Ben's a member of Extreme Opportunities. Okay. Now, Andrew, you're not, you're not part of the Motley Fool team, so I'm not going to ask you to have an opinion on its inclusion, but I will ask you to talk about the stock itself. And Ben also suggests some other companies, and I would be keen to hear if you've got some thoughts on that. So here's Ben's question. He says, hi, guys, I'm trying to understand how Kogan, being a mid to large cap stock, falls into the Extreme Opportunities service. When clearly there are many options for other companies in more emerging markets with greater risk and possible growth, which to me seems the main idea of your service, higher risk and higher reward. While Kogan has a lot of benefits, it does seem as this choice comes across as an easy out. And after holding the Game Changers socks last year and seeing the same companies popping up essentially paying twice for the same advice, oh dear, I do have to question why this has been so heavily recommended with a full article as well. I'd also like to pose, and this is where it gets interesting, a couple of possibilities and ask the pros and cons of why both these markets and companies could not be looked at or chosen. So I'm going to go to this in a second, and I'm going to answer the first bit just to get it off the off the table so we can move forward. Um, ben, so I don't, I don't speak for Extreme Opportunities. I don't know what, why the guys specifically chose Kogan over something else. I'm a Kogan shareholder. I've recommended it myself. We've talked about it many times on this podcast, so you know my views on it. Uh, but the, the so Extreme Opportunities is, is a higher risk, higher reward service. We are the, the guys there are looking for higher growth opportunities um, and expect to have a, a lower than average strike rate. But their main aim is to find what they consider to be multi-bagger returns. So two, three, four, five, ten times returns from the stocks they're choosing. And they know that some of them will be right, some will be wrong. And that's kind of the that's kind of the, the way that the game is played. I think the question really would be: is this stock, you know, does it have the upside potential? that uh, you know justifies a two three four five ten bagger potential return uh, and i think i would say absolutely yes and i would say the team clearly do as well uh, and, and if that's true um you know the the the, the risk reward is a trailer right it's a probabilities game i think it's very likely kogan has a lower chance of blowing up than other companies and maybe it has an absolute a lower absolute upside but if it sits on that, if it sits on that right continuum, the line of best fit between risk and reward that gives you a multi-bagger return, then that's what the guys are trying to do. And I think if it, you know, if it grows to ten percent a year from here, arguably they, the Kogan will have been a failure from an EO perspective because it will have missed the mandate they're looking for. But it's certainly very volatile. And if it does end up being a $20, 30 40 fifty dollar stock, then I think they will have well and truly made a lot of money for their members who followed that particular advice. And I think it does meet the test of a company that has multi-bagger potential in the next, say, five or seven years. And I, I don't I don't know that being riskier, um, you know, let, let's say let's say the, the return for Kogan is, is a three-bagger. Let's pick a number, right? Let's say the return for the rest of the services is also a three-bagger because there's a whole lot of 10-baggers and a whole lot of complete flameouts. Uh, if the if the average return is the same, then Kogan's exactly on that line of best fit, which is risk reward. Is it slightly lower risk than some others? Yes. Is it slightly lower potential reward than some others? Yes, in raw terms. But on average, does it fit on that line of best fit? I think it probably will. I think a, a three, four, five bagger from here is very possible. I won't say probable because I you know I, I think it is, but I you know it's not. I can't speak on their behalf. Um, but I think, uh, look, mate, you, you're a tough judge. If this is a fifty dollars stock in a few years' time, uh, and, and you know, I think that's. But it wasn't as risky. I think we should feel very, very good about that. Um, if there are some other stocks that are, you know, go to one hundred dollars instead, uh, but others that go go broke, and the total return is the same as Kogan, then Kogan will have done exactly what was required. I think the test on this one probably is how close to the average return for the service does it get. And if it's pretty close to the average return, again, that line of best fit, I think it well and truly deserves its place inside extreme opportunities because of that multi-bagger potential. 
All right. Um, I'm, I'll jump on from that, Andrew, because there's a couple of questions that Ben asked. He says, um, here's some companies. First one is Arctis, or Arctis, A-R-C-H-T-I-S, A-R-9 is the code. He said, it's one of Australia's main cybersecurity companies with the Australian government. And with recently acquiring nuclear, uh, and with a recently acquired, I assume, nuclear cyber, it gives them a great position for future global growth. Also, great board leading the way in cybersecurity looking to expand with the increased working from home model set to continue. You also expect a company called Linus or Linus, L-N-U, starting to make its mark in the video virtualization world, he says. While it's still in its infancy, it has a potential to be soon working with Live Tiles, uh, which is already backed in this fund and their wizard application being available for Microsoft Teams, Zoom and WebEx. Makes for an extreme pick, but also growth possibilities are massive. Now, I will say on behalf of EO, you know, I don't speak on their behalf, but to talk about the, the service where I ask you about the stocks, Andrew, um, you know, the well, they're not just looking for unbridled upside, you know, because, you know, if, if I've got a 0.1% chance of a 100 bagger, that's still going to cost me money, right? Because you want a 1% chance of a 100 bagger at, at the very minimum for that mass to work out. Um, because if you, you know, the, the, the sheer reality, particularly if the, if the alternative is zero, you've got to do the maths and say, okay, what's the probab- probability times potential reward is the likely return. If I've got a 20% chance of a 100 bagger, I should expect overall that I'm going to get a 20 bagger, right? That, that's how that, that math should work. Now, not very few companies are 100 baggers, but you get the idea. Um, so just because there's massive upside possible um, doesn't mean it's necessarily probable. And the odds of achieving that upside are the real question here because God knows you and I have been around long enough, Andrew, to know every, or not every, we don't know every one of them, but we've seen plenty of biotech hopefuls or mining hopefuls that if they cure cancer, they could be huge. If they strike gold, they could be rich. Those things are absolutely true. The problem is that little two-word, two-letter word, if, <laughs> if, the, if, they, if they don't do it, then they're worth zero. And honestly, if all it was was saying, you know, how big is the market if they're successful and buy every company that has a large potential market, you'd have bought the whole ASX, you know, X200 and lost money. Uh, because there are so many businesses that always, frankly, just buy the ASX 200. If you want all of them, guess what? You get them all. Um, so you've got to put some probability alongside the potential, and that multiplication is the math you do to work out whether a company is worth adding to your scorecard or your portfolio. So that out of the way for EO. Do you know either those two companies, mate? Arc- Arctus or Arctus or Linus? No, no, I, I, I don't. I've, I had a very, very quick squeeze. They're both sort of around the $50 million mark market Cap. So they're, okay. they're very, very small companies on, on, on the ASX. Neither of them appear to be profitable uh, at this stage. So they're, they're burning through cash. By the way, that's not a turnoff for me. I own quite a few companies that are, that are pre-profit um, right. and that's fine. But, but given the, the size, the liquidity and, and their current profit position, it, it automatically puts them in a much higher risk uh, category. Um, and that's okay. But but your real edge here is in understanding these businesses far better than than others on the market. And frankly, it's one of the reasons I like small caps. I think you have a you have a pretty decent chance of that because you know frankly they're too small and illiquid for for any of the fund managers or professionals to get involved with. So you often tend to be up against you know a bunch of punters who are probably there just for a short time uh, and a good time and not necessarily a long time. Yeah, right. um, and, and so, so I've I've done personally extremely well out of these types of businesses, but mm. and there's a huge but here. 
in, 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 in going through that journey, you suffer very long periods of brutal, devastating <laughs> paper losses because they're just so damn volatile. And, and a lot of the time, the thesis just takes years to play out. Oh, this company's going to be a huge player in cybersecurity. Great. Maybe they will. But, you know, anyone who's been in business knows that that's, 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 a, that's a, a journey of years to sort of get yeah, there. Right, you don't right, just right. become this overnight success. So, so yep. you, you really, you, you, you have to, and I, and so I don't know these companies, so I'm not going to say they're good or they're bad. But I would want to have a look at, I would want to go beyond the narrative because whenever I'm in this space, people will talk about the market opportunity and how big it is and how fast the market is growing and how big it's going to be and how everyone in China wants to buy it or something like that, which is great. And they're all great things to see. But I actually want to see some traction um, uh, with the business itself. And so although they're not making profit, I'd love to see when you see sales really growing there and at the same time management keeping a pretty tight lid on costs. So when you have this lovely combination of a really well-contained cost space, a business has the potential to yeah, leverage right. rather well without without having to ramp up costs as it grows and a very fast-growing top line for very good reasons. Mm. It's just, a, it's just a, 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 an, an excellent product that's getting a lot of traction first mover advantage, whatever it may be. I actually think that's a sweet spot for me. I love that kind of uh, place. So, so all I'm saying is go beyond the story, which is important, but, but and look at, well, they seem to have the opportunity. They seem to have the potential. Is yeah. It's not being shown in earnings yet, and that's okay, but is it at least being shown in sales? And, 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 if, and how long do I have to sort of push that trajectory forward before they do tip into profit? Um, and then, you know, so, so I, I like to do these things very simply where I'll sort of say, all right, let's thumb suck where they'll be at in five years, you know? Um, and it doesn't have to be complicated. You know, they're maybe 100 million in sales now. I reckon they'll be 300 million by then. And I think a five-time sales multiple is <laughs> is not unreasonable for a company growing at that rate. Now, that's that's really rough and ready, but it's yeah, a starting yeah. point. And, and, it's a, and it's a really good it's a really good place to sort of get a, get a bit of a quick litmus test on what the market is doing because often the market get, runs away with the story and you can have a story that's absolutely true and that will play out, but you still do very badly because you know the market just just went went silly with it all so i don't know mate that's a, that's a lot of rambling for two stocks i don't know enough of just do the work is is the simple thing understand the businesses think in a multi-year period yep. and try and thumb a price that seems sensible and then strap in because even if you're right <laughs> it, it whoo it's gonna be a ride it's gonna you be know, a hell of a know. ride but i think that's a really important point it pays to be not cynical as an investor but skeptical and i think Lots yeah. of companies have promise in these areas. Um, I th- there, there are plenty that fulfill their promise and there are plenty, plenty, plenty more that don't. And yes, absolutely, that's what higher risk growth investing is about. It's about trying to get the, you know, it's always that probability, the chance, the, the size of success multiplied by the chance of success. And that's that probability question that I think really bears looking into. Um, and there are so many, and I don't know anything about these companies, so I'm not commenting about on them at all. But there are so many promotional companies that want you to believe how big their total addressable market is and how big they could be. And I'm mindful of the likes of, say, a GetSwift, for example, that was once the coolest thing in the world because it was signing deals with Amazon and other people. Um, And you know what? That was a massive market. And if it was successful, it could have done well. But, you know, was it going to? Was it likely to? Hindsight says we know the answer is no. But, you know, there there are so many of those businesses and there's the other way that does do well and, and is really successful. And those mm. businesses are worth owning. Um, but that's, that's the, you know, it's really important to understand the difference between those two. And the probability assessment is the work the guys are doing at EO in particular, but all growth investors should do. As you say, Andrew, do the work 
it's great advice because that really gives you a sense or at least helps you um, helps you try to put a uh, a number on that on that probability chance and you've got to look at it and say is it is it being successful not not just could it be yes everything could be anything um, you know if I <laughs> if I had wings I'd be you know what, what's, the, what's the old line if, if your grandmother had wheels she'd be a bicycle um, you know yes if if yeah. if, it's, if yeah. it's you know could be anything is it likely to be? What is the probability of that success? And you're far, far better waiting for tangible results, as you say, rather than jumping at shadows or, or jumping at possibilities because that's what companies want you to do. That's how they sell their shares. Um, but there's just, there's, the, the ASX is, and frankly, portfolios are littered, littered with the, with the corpses of businesses that promised the world and delivered nothing. And, and you just want to be really, really careful that you're not just torching money for the sake of it. Oh, yeah, the successful ones are the exception to the rules, uh, yeah. statistically. Uh, absolutely. So so the other the other thing to bear in mind is with this space is always take a basket approach, you know. So is it compelling? You might do a bunch of work, get super yeah. high conviction on it, but, you know, you wouldn't put 20% of your portfolio into it. Mm. Um, but you might have a basket of 10 or 20 stocks yeah. uh, within your portfolio that, that are all the higher risk, higher reward ones, knowing full well mm. that three quarters of them aren't going to amount to anything or maybe 80, mm. 90% don't amount to anything. But mm. just... Just, but just knowing that the ones that do hit are the ones that do deliver those 10x plus kinds of returns, and that kind of makes up for a lot. So don't 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 concentrate in this space. Uh, is in is in from a portfolio perspective, but but just make sure you take that basket approach. It's a much more sensible approach. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's go to a very different question from Lee, mate. And this is the other end of the spectrum. Lee just says, hey, I'm new to the industry and I'm keen to learn and wishing to be steered in the right direction. And I want to know if I can start with as little as 500 bucks and build upon it. Thank you from Lee. Pretty uh, easy, simple question. Oh, it's also, an easy one. Yes. Pandora's box question, yes right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was just saying, well, it's easy. Easy, yes. You can start with 500 and you can build from it. Yes and yes. Yeah, but that's an easy one. But as you say, there's there's depth to that. Right. And I think, so So the question the, the goes to then how. So, Andrew, if I said to you, someone's come to me and said, I want to get started, I got 500 bucks. What should I do? Mm. What would you tell them? Well... I'm going to assume that that someone who's got a bit of time left in the workforce. If it was someone who's 80 years of age, I'd sort of say, geez, um, okay, it's going to be hard to make that work. Um, uh, someone who's 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, decades uh, left, I think it's it's just get it get it in there straight away. Now, normally you would sort of say, oh, diversification is super important. Well, you're not going to diversify. There's a little caveat to this, which I'll come back to. You're not going to diversify with 500 bucks, right? You're going to, in fact, I think that's the minimum parcel you can buy with most brokers. So you, you, you're going to have one stock and then it might take you another six months to save up 500 bucks and then you'll have two stocks. And, um, but that's fine because you, you, are, um, you, you do have the capacity to build on that over time and it's important just to get started. But the other little hack is, and one that's becoming increasingly popular and for very good reason is, and listeners of the podcast will be familiar with it, uh, are ETFs, which is just a basket of shares. So I, for people in that situation, I would sort of say, listen, Broad-based, low-cost index fund, 500 bucks, boom, you're in. You're in the game. You're in something that's probably almost by definition is going to deliver the market average return, which we know is generally going to be pretty good over the long term, and you're away. And then I would just I would add to that as often as I possibly could, um, uh, making sure to smell the roses along the way. You don't, we can't all just live on two-minute noodles and inside a cardboard box because it maximizes our saving rate, but you know, do what you can. 
And then I would start getting stock specific once once I'd, I'd, I'd built that up a little bit and then just slowly start legging it in and building and building and building. That that is That is really your job until you get sort of within about 10 years of retirement or so is just build. And, um, and as you said, Scott, the most important thing to start, it's that it's a classic saying, which I love, which is, you know, when was the best time to plant an oak tree? Well, 50 years ago, (laughs) when's the second best time it's today, Mm. uh, just start. And you know what, a a lot of the time, in fact, you can almost guarantee because this is probably a pessimistic way of looking at the world, but the day that, uh, Matt, Matt puts his 500 bucks to work in an ETF is the day the market falls 30%. And goes through a multi-year protracted bear period because that's just that's just luck and how it goes and it's 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 uh, it can be a really daunting start to your investing career but who cares you know it's five hundred bucks you'll be adding to that and therefore buying in at lower prices over time and it's not about where the market's going to be next month next week mm. next year it's it's mm. really where's the market going to be in twenty thirty five something you know. Mm. Most people don't think in those time frames, and most people don't do well at investing. It's probably probably a link there, but but um, yeah, get started, go broad, yeah. keep it simple, and then yeah. and then you know you will, as you said at the start, you'll gain a lot of experience, you'll get more of a passion for it, and yeah. you'll go from there. Yeah. Like it, uh, I'm going to add, mate. There is a, a couple of other options that are easier with smaller amounts of money these days. Uh, we have no affiliation with them at Comsex Pocket app. Um, I think you can trade for as little as $50 per trade. And it's like $2 brokerage, something ridiculous like that. Uh, they've got a basket of seven ETFs you can choose from. So it's super limited. Um, but it's a really, really great way to get started with some small amounts of money and add regularly as you go. So I think if you're starting with 500 bucks, I would absolutely go to something like Pocket. Um, there may be others out there for all I know, and they may be great for all I know. So I don't want to um, over, over ramp Pocket. I have, again, I have no affiliation. I don't own shares. We have no commercial or other arrangements with them. I'm a Comsec customer for what it's worth but again like it has no bearing because trust me they don't give me discounted brokerage um, so I get no benefit from it mm-hmm. um, in fact they, they charged me too much the other day and I've got I'm still dealing with an issue with them but that's a different question so if anything I've got reason not to no I don't really they were fine um, anyway uh, yes pocket Comsex pocket app a little as 50 bucks per trade that makes it you don't have to make Fifty dollars worth of trades. You got five hundred bucks. You can put the five hundred bucks in one or multiple ETFs and get your portfolio off to a really, really nice diversified start. Start that journey. And as Andrew says, build from there. So there's a there's a little bit of a a one A answer one A. Um, yeah, yes, you can get started with five hundred bucks in a single ETF, but you can also grab a couple of ETFs at as little as fifty bucks a trade and oh, that's cool. two dollars yeah. for a brokerage. So it's pretty pretty cheap. Mate, um, let's move on to a question from Ian, and he listened to our response about investment bonds the other day. He says, "Hi, a question for your mailbag, please." I listen with interest to Patrick's question about investment bonds. Scott and Andrew's answer of it depends got me thinking. Full disclosure, he says, I commenced investigating an investment bond for my kids several years ago. I now think this may have been a mistake. I'd like your thoughts on the following. The bonds pay a 30% corporate tax, he says, on earnings annually, and they're configured so it's prohibitive to access the funds until 10 years have passed. The bonds I purchased invest in a Vanguard fund of global equities. I could have bought the same fund outside the investment bond structure. It's now occurred to me that the top t- top rate of tax is 45%, but with a CGT discount for holding the fund for more than 12 months, that effectively becomes 22.5% or lower if you're in a lower tax bracket. So trimming the earnings 30% each year for 10 years, as opposed to letting it compound for 10 years and then paying 22.5%, seems to me a significantly worse outcome. I think I've made a significant mistake he says i'd appreciate your thoughts thanks for the super work you guys do on the podcast i've been listening for several years and learned something new and valuable each week for that i'm very grateful thank you from ian um this is a tough one andrew it's um 
Mm. So look, I, I will say just very quickly, it says they're configured, so it's prohibited to access the funds until ten years have passed. Um, just just be really really clear. That's that's the base. That's why the bonds are tax free. Uh, on on redemption, they you have to hold for ten years. So it's not so much that the the company issuing the bonds have configured them to be dastardly or difficult or whatever. That's the very that's the very function of investment bonds. They are a ten year minimum hold. That's why. So just just to be really clear about that. Not that it matters. He didn't mention the the bond um, issuer, so it doesn't really matter. But just to be really clear, it's not like someone's being sneaky or tricky trying to do this. Um, that's exactly how you get that tax benefit. That being said, any any thoughts on Ian's question or or the circumstances he sets out? Well, I, I confess when we discussed it last week that I'm I am far from an expert in investment bonds. I'm not really familiar with them at all. So I, I, I suspect, I'll put this to you, I suspect that although they're paying the corporate rate of tax on any earnings, mm. if they themselves don't realise any gains over that period, yeah, they yeah. themselves are getting the benefits of, of, of compounding. So mm. for a very simple uh, illustration, it's not as though they're taking 30% of the value of that fund each year. Yep. It's just whatever, whatever realised gains there were so in a world where again simple simple explanation uh, uh, example where they have just bought something and they have not done any transactions there's been no mm-hmm. dividends or distributions issued over the period the actual tax paid is zero mm-hmm. and then you get zero tax at the very end is is that right or am i missing something so you're right um i do think over the full time even if you pay the tax at the end versus the capital gains tax at the end it does seem like the cgt is lower than the tax payable and that's absolutely true so on that on that maths alone, if it was in my name or your name or Ian's name, it would make sense to use our own names rather than the bond. The answer comes in part from a, um, a, a message we got from Alistair also uh, during the week. He says, hi, Scott. Enjoy the podcast, the information it gives. Just caught up on the podcast and the discussion on investment bonds for miners. This was part of the reason that some choose investment bonds for miners are that once miners have more than $416 in income per year, they are taxed at 66% on every dollar above that threshold. Makes the 30% company tax look very reasonable. He says, thanks for being so willing to share your knowledge, Alistair. So part of Ian's answer is Interesting. that he's exactly right, except that he's kind of, well, so there's, there's, let me let me explain why it's not 100% right, but let me also then uh, talk about the details or the possible outcomes. So he's right if it was you or me or him that were doing it. If it was the kids doing it, they would pay 66% tax rather than 30% tax, which again, as Alistair says, is obviously much more. And so that's why, because we're not looking in Ian's question about the fact the kids own them and in their own names versus owning outside that structure. So yes, um, that that's the difference. If, if you invested in the kids' names, you'd be paying massively more tax uh, than than the, the CGT discounted rates. So we're kind of we're kind of mixing um, adults and kids here with, with Ian's question. That being said, and this is where it gets a little bit more complex. And this is why I hate this area. Like. <sighs> I, 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 I hate the government's changed it to some degree. <laughs> um, I, I, they don't because other people basically screwed the tax system by pretending their kids earned money and got advantage of the tax-free threshold, right? So the government's not doing this to hurt miners investing. They're doing it to close a loophole that other people were, were exploiting and, and the kids are the un, unfortunate, um, you know, they, they unfortunately get the whack for it because people are saying, well, my kid earned 20 grand of, in- of, of income last year and the tax-free threshold 20 grand, so they pay no tax. You know, I could pay my eight-year-old twenty grand a year to sweep up the, you know, the office here, and then claim that it was a, a work expense, and then give him twenty grand a year, call that tax-free, and guess what? I've just reduced my tax by by whatever is ten grand. So, you know, that that's why they've had to do it. I don't blame them for having to find a solution to it, but it's really crappy. And the difference between your point, Alice's point, and uh, the conversation we had last week is, yeah, if it's in the miner's name, 
the investment bond makes more sense. But there are other options, and I've talked about the fact you can put your shares in your name as trustee for Johnny Smith or Jane Smith, uh, and in doing so, um, you can effectively do a bit of both. So as long as they are the, uh, you know, if the account's in your name, but they are the beneficiary, and again, please get personal advice from a, from an accountant or tax advisor. But generally speaking, that that's a structure that gets you the best of both worlds. Um, you don't have to pay excess taxation because you are the account owner, but they are the beneficiary of that account. It's in their interest and everything's been done their way. And that should be, as long as it passes appropriate tests, capital gains tax-free when you pass those shares to your child when they become 18. Because it literally is for their benefit. There's no, there's no tax dodging going on. So that's one way you can do it. That's the preferred way I've seen explained as one way to make it easier. But it is in your name and the shares are held in trust for them the investment bond can be held in the kids' names uh, in the appropriate way, exactly as the way that's described by Alistair. So um, it's really, really messy. I don't think investment bonds are likely to be the best option for the reasons we talked about last week and the messages that you've shared, Ian, with, with us in terms of how the tax is, is is applied. I think having it in your name as a, as, as a trustee for the child is a better way to do it. But I absolutely uh, you know, would say to every single person listening, please don't do anything based on that please go and get some personal financial advice, tax advice, make sure it's structured absolutely correctly so there are no stings in the tail from the ATO. Can I, can I just ask a question, Scott? Um, just, just to Ian, Ian's last point there, he sort of he says, oh, no, I've, I've made a, a significant mistake. Mm. Is it, it seems to me, and, and again, I'm sort of new to investment bonds, so I'll ask you, but it seems to me as though even if we argue that the other approach might have been better, it's not as though in 10 years' time he'll – like oh my gosh what a terrible mm-hmm. investment it, i it, it may well be that it's just like oh i could have made a little bit more if i'd done done it out in a, in a different structure mm-hmm. but it's not going to it's not going to go from being a, a, a terrible investment to a great investment or vice versa is that yeah. a, is that a fair comment i i, I don't want him to lose especially now it's locked in i yes. don't want him to lose any sleep over correct. thinking correct <laughs> it's not a, it's not a massive it, it, like, uh, it, I don't even sure it is is a mistake, but let's Correct. assume it, it is is something that is is slightly not ideal. It's it's not something that he should lose sleep over, right? Like his his kid's still going to be yep. pretty happy after ten years. That's absolutely that true, fair? and and it's one of those things where you know heads head you win, tails you still win, and one might be better than the other, but but there's no you know you still want to be winning either way, right? I think that's that's exactly the right point you make, Andrew. So yes, absolutely. okay, that's okay, cool. Yeah, yep, for sure, yep. Um, and he just yeah. and just you know invest, investing is always better than not investing. So that's, Correct. That's, exactly that's that. Yeah, that, win exactly on, right. on that front. You know. Yeah. Yep. No. You, no. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. That's that's the key. That's the key. Um, that's the key point to, to raise. I think you're right to, to raise it. Um, mate, let's go to a uh, quick question from Dan. This might be, I think, probably our last question. Um, Hello, good man. He says it was bittersweet moment on Sunday hearing the news that Doc is moving on. I'm sure I speak on behalf of the entire community when I say that Doc, you have changed the lives of so many of us, including myself. Uh, while I'm here, though, he says, I may, I may as well ask you a question. Well, I've recently started investing in the US and have 10 individual stocks, mainly mid to large caps, but I've started looking at industry-specific ETFs, mainly the actively managed ARC funds that have ETFs that track things like gene editing and autonomous tech and robotic industries. Do you have general thoughts around the growth, uh, future growth of these types of ETFs may or may not have? Thanks, Dan. Now, Arc is a investment company in the US, very, very, very high profile. Kathy Wood is a name you may know. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. They are spawning new ETFs at, at a remarkable rate because there's plenty of money to be uh, hopefully made, but certainly uh, be invested in these ETFs because people get excited about the idea. They like Arc's reputation. If you're Arc, you're like, well, might I like some more ETFs? That makes some sense. Question Dan asks, of course, is, uh, well, 
that's all fine, but is it worth investing in? Do you have any thoughts on industry-specific ETFs, tech ETFs, ARC, ARCs ETFs? How do you want to, how do you want to t- tackle this question, Andrew? Yeah, another big question. I, I, I think <laughs> um, I like industry-specific ETFs for sectors and industries where I have a good deal of confidence that there is a bright future, although I also recognize it's at an early stage and it's probably going to be a 90% failure rate going forward. So that that was the that was the case when tr- the locomotive was invented, when planes were, you know, it's just all of these new industries. Um, you could go back, in fact, you don't have to go back that far, go back to 99 and think what people were saying about the internet. Well, mm. they were largely right, frankly. Um, maybe even understated the significance uh, of it. But but mm. a lot, and while great fortunes were made, and we all know the names, most of them lost money. So mm. so mm. I think I think ETFs are good in that regard. So electric vehicles might be uh, a, a, an example uh, of that, or AI might be an example. Mm. I, I have I have I have I have a lot of uh, cool expectations for those as 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 a as a sector. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I would wager that ninety nine percent of all the businesses that that start off in this sector are, are going to fail because it's just very early days. Um, you know, dominance is sort of trying to be carved out. These very fast paces in the change of technology and things can just come out of left field. So I think I think ETF is is great way just to. I, I'm just casting such a wide net. And as we were speaking about uh, earlier in the week. Um, even though a lot of them, most of them will fail, those that win will win so spectacularly. I'll probably do okay overall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's 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 a great that's that's the use case for me for for <laughs> industry uh, specific uh, ETFs. Having said that, I always prefer the passive approach um, when when you've got an active manager in there. So just mm-hmm. for those that don't know, passive says we just pick some index that that tracks this sector and we we just copy it. The others say no, no, we actually pick the stock. So it's an act. It's like a managed fund, and they and it's only as good as the stock selecting skills of the of the, the the users. And of course, because you are paying for all these analysts to sort of go through that and put the portfolio together, there's much much higher fees as well. Mm-hmm. And so even when they do get what what they call in the industry a bit of alpha, a bit of outperformance, that can often be and often usually is negated by the the increase in fees. So that's my two cents, mate. Um, yeah, very favorably disposed towards sectors that are still early stage and high risk. I think great, but but go the passive approach. It's just lower cost. Mm. I think that's what do you reckon? Roughly right. I I I'm kind of. I've got a foot in both camps. I don't love industry ETFs, generally speaking. Uh, well, here's the problem. So there's ETFs are so, like, the, the term is almost meaningless right now. And this is what I want to kind of probably yeah. make the most, the highest, strongest point on. So back in the day, we had thing called index funds. They were funds that tracked the passive indexes you've already mentioned. And then they were called ETFs because they were, instead of having to send a check to the fund manager, you could buy them on the index hence they were exchange traded funds and so vanguard's low cost etf that tracked the asx 200 used to have to send them a check now you can buy it in the asx and that was fine and that was an etf the problem is now now etf is any fund that's traded on the exchange for any purpose and i think it's i don't necessarily think the active guys are are bad guys i don't think they're necessarily even hijacking the term in a in a cynical way but I do have to say that people like us who've said ETFs are great and these guys say, hey, we've got an active ETF over here and people go, oh, it's the same thing. It, like it couldn't be more different, right? It literally no. couldn't be more different. And so- Very different. We, we talk about ETFs yeah. as a class. We almost need to retire the, the name when we talk about index funds. We need to be really, really, really specific about the difference. So 
Index passive index ETFs, I love the hell out of. Super low cost for the for the know nothing or do nothing investor, or the investor who doesn't know or doesn't care, or the investor who wants just a solid diversified base. An index fund is spectacular, and using an exchange traded index fund is great for that. So go for it. They probably should call them ETFs or something, mate, to really make it really clear what is and what isn't an index fund. You know, that's it. I'll, mm. I'll, I'll talk to Vanguard mm. about that. Um, then there is the passive <laughs> sector fund. So there is the you can you could buy a banking fund or a retail fund or a tech fund or a utilities fund, and they they would passively track that index and or that subsector, and that's also passive. Now you've got to have a view on the sectors, and then there's the purely active fund like the like the Arc ETF, which is actually just a managed fund, and it's entirely it's not it has nothing in common at all with an index ETF. With that group of, of companies, mm. you've got to believe that, and, and by the way, ARK choose these specifically. They choose the weightings, they choose which companies, they choose when they increase and decrease the weightings over time. This is purely an active fund. So you simply have to believe that A, the theme you're looking at is worth investing in and B, ARK or whatever the fund manager is can do it well, do it profitably, do it successfully, do it in a market beating way. That's a pretty big jump. Now, ARK has done really well so far with some of its tech investments because in the most part, they've massively overweight Tesla and Tesla's done really well. That's honestly the largest contributor. Now, there are others as well. I'm not suggesting they're a one-trick pony at all. What I am saying is I wonder how much attention we'd be paying if Tesla was $50 now rather than $500 or whatever the price is. And so that's real. And I, and I get that and we should think about that and we should make that work. So that's all That's all cool. Um, I think the, the real question, excuse me, I'll cough. The real question for investors is, are you buying ARK just because autonomy is cool and ARK's, been, Arc's done well? If that's the case, I probably would say it's not a great investment thesis. Now, that being said, you could arguably say Kathy Wood's a great fund manager, like you might say about... Uh, I've gone completely blank, mate. Who's the, who's the Magellan guy? Hamish Douglas. You might say Hamish is a great fund manager. I'll invest him because I think he's going to invest well. And, and you know, Or Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch. You could absolutely do that too. So I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying... There's so many funds from ARK right now. There's so many different types of funds. They're choosing specific themes. I don't know. I'd, I don't know. I, I, you know they're not putting their whole, all of their money into just one theme. They're making a theme available for you if you choose to use it. And they'll do their best to beat the market with it. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not entirely sure whether I'd take that as, a, as the one and only approach to, to making money doing it. I think I'd probably look more broadly and say, if there was a general ARK fund, I'd probably invest in that if I thought Kathy Wood was a great fund manager rather than just autonomy or just gene editing because I don't really have a strong view about whether gene editing is a thing how long it will take to be a thing how big a thing it will be how profitable that thing will be um, old enough to have been around during 2000 when the human genome was first mapped and the companies that were supposed to do spectacularly well from there guess what they didn't the genome was mapped it's been a massive medical breakthrough no one's made money out of it so again how sure are you that gene editing will be an industry that can beat the market that can grow to be a certain size if you don't know that Kathy would say, here are my best gene editing ideas, but she's not promising she'll beat the market with it. Um, so long answer, but I think I would I would eschew those, even if you're like the fund manager, invest in their best fund rather than you know an idea they have in a particular sector or industry. Does that, does that sound reasonable, Ram? Yeah, it, it does. It does. I, and I, I just I just caution um, people again to just be care, beware of this narrative bias. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's, there there are these things that are just sort of. I think unquestionably true, or you can, you can be as certain of them as you can be certain of anything in the future. Like again, I I would I would bet my left arm that in the future, you know, virtually every car is is self driving. Um, that being said, 
Where it gets a lot harder is, is that 10 years away or is that 50 years away? And being too early is the same as being wrong wow. um, uh, in that instance. Um, so so if, if, you, if, you, if you have this view that, oh, this this thing, it's going to be big, therefore I'm going to invest in it, that's, that's a start. But you also, you do have to have a view on, on the time frame as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 and just, you know what's a really good example without going down another rabbit hole is, is, legal, uh, is, is medical marijuana. So there's a lot of pot right, stocks right, right. out there at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to get too yeah, much yeah. into it. But like there's, there, there, is, there is, I actually think that there's a very good case for that. And I think that there will likely be a, a bigger industry in the future mm-hmm. because of that. Mm. However, a second sort of order thinking there, which says, well, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a weed, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it grows like a weed. It, it, it's, I, what I wonder is, is that let's say that it becomes this industry. Where is the competitive advantage? Come? It, it is essentially a commodity. So it, it could be something which becomes huge in the future, but it's just an industry that has very poor economics as well. Mm. So you, you, you've, got to, you've got to go beyond that, hey, the industry is going to be a bit bigger. And again, this is what, this is what everyone talks about with airlines. You know, 100 years ago, you could have said airlines are going to be a massive industry. Guess what? They are. Um, guess what? No one makes any money out of them. So, so it's, mm. there, there's, there's that what Howard Marks will call first order and second order <laughs> thinking. So I think it's mm, right that mm, people mm. come at it with this first order. Like, hey, you know, gene editing is going to be a thing. That's perfectly mm, reasonable. Mm. It probably is actually. I, I, mm. I've got a lot of passion and interest in that area. That's great. Mm. That's great. But, but don't, don't have that be the beginning, middle and end of your investment thesis. Yeah. If it is successful, what does the industry likely look like? Yeah, what yeah, kind right. of time frame are we talking about? If this, is a, if this is a theme that's going to play out over 10 years, well, I can't freak out and sell out you know, six months later because the, sh- the ETF <laughs> share price didn't go in the right direction. You, know, right, right. you, 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 you have to flesh it out more than just the story because mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. can be right, but they can look wrong for a long, long period of time. Um, so just, just beware of all of that. Very good. Mate, that takes us to the end of this particular podcast. We hope our listeners have enjoyed our random rantings. Hopefully, we've been a little bit helpful, a little bit useful. Remember, if you do want to follow us, jump onto the socials at Sage Simeon or at Strawman Invest if you're looking for Andrew. That's all on Twitter, of course, because he's a man, a bit like our own doc, who uh, who doesn't love Facebook, doesn't love Instagram. I don't know what it is about my co-host. Maybe I, I'm, I'm a repulsive figure. Maybe <laughs> I'm pushing them away from them. I'm not sure. If you do like uh, Twitter, though, also you can grab me at TMF Scott P and The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. You can grab me and The, and the Fool on Instagram at TMF Scott P or at The Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, try Scott Phillips Money or One Word or The Motley Fool Australia. And of course, as you've listened to this episode, we hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you will listen to more of them. To do so, make sure you do subscribe to the podcast. Jump onto Apple iTunes and hit the subscribe button or your favorite Android podcast app. And of course, you can consider the listener app, L-A-S-T-N-R. There's no E. These days, you're only cool if you take vowels out. I, I saw a um, <laughs> I saw just really random one. There's a new fun. Have you seen the new fun manager? They're like, it's precedent or it's something similar. But oh, the, no. There's no. There's not a single vowel in it. They've taken it all out. So you actually have to know how it's pronounced to actually... <laughs> it opposite, oh, maybe no. it's persistent, actually. P, it's like P-R-S-T-N-T or... Try, anyway. Uh, anyway, listener, L-I-S-T-N-R. You're only cool if you haven't got a vowel these days. A motley fool might be tough without vowels, but we'll see what we can do. And if you like what we're doing, please do give us a rating on iTunes. Let us know how you feel like the podcast is going. And of course, the more ratings and reviews you can give us if you have the time, the inclination means more people can find the podcast. And as we've said before, if you're liking it and listening to it, we figure other people would enjoy it as well. And you can do us a favor. Hey, the podcast's free. So do us a favor if you wouldn't mind. Leave us some stars and leave us a review so others can understand what they might get out of the podcast as well. 
while I'm here, don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness and some marketing, full disclosure, straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. See you next week. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.